Hi there, thanks for being here. I'm Greg, a leadership and career coach. In this podcast, I interview people who follow their passion and purpose. I go deep into understanding their motivations, their constraints, and what was going on intellectually and emotionally in the key parts of their journey. With this podcast, I want to inspire others to follow their passion and purpose. If this is you, you may also be interested in my six-week Find Direction course. You can find more information at www.derby.me. Derby yourself, my friends. As I sit back and watch how the world evolves, we all chase the money. We are not absolved. They say we fight for freedom, but still I feel controlled. I think it's time to break free and destroy the mold. I think it's time to break free and fulfill your goals. What a discussion with Tiss or Curtis Blanc. This is the longest episode to date for the podcast because Tiz has a lot of valuable insights and stories to share. He's gone from growing up in poverty to dealing drugs to prison to public speaking and events hosted by Prince Charles or Gary Lineker and to finally follow his passions for music by building his own music production company and composing and speaking his poems. I hope you enjoy it and that you get inspired to follow your passion and purpose. Tess, can you describe for us what you're, what you're doing today? So I currently run an artist development and music production company. We're based out of, so we're on the East Coast. And we work with young people, anyone really, from low-income communities that have uh, interest or an aspiration in having some type of a career in music. We have recording studio facilities. I myself am a sound engineer. I do produce and engineer a lot of the artists uh, that come to us. I also do artist management and I, I support the artists with their independent development in music uh, and the music industry. Uh, I also have a side company that does hiring out of sound systems and PA systems for functions and weddings and different types of events. And more personally, I do a bit of public speaking and a bit of mentoring, and I'm involved in a few different projects to support young people with their aspirations, with their personal development, with their professional development, and just with their self-awareness and self-love being at the core of all of that, to be frank. I'm sure we'll dive into, into this part quite soon and can you just share what type of public speaking it, it varies but I, I do a lot of motivational speaking in prisons talking to men who are preparing to be released and just talking about some of my experiences and um, talking about just overcoming some of the challenges what things you should be conscious of when you're actually trying to resettle into society I do some motivational speeches in schools which directly links to the music production work that I do, do a few career workshops. And I'm also a spoken word artist. I, I do some poetry and spoken word stuff as well. So you talked about speaking at schools and, and what I wondered was if you asked your younger self, maybe at school, you know, and, and, and shared with him what you've accomplished today, what, what do you think he would say? I think he would say that I'm underachieved based on what his over expectation of himself was. <laughs> okay, like can you share that. a little more? What type of expectations did you have? I, I think I'm, I'm living the expectation, just not as earlier in my life as I thought I would have. Mm, so it's not, a bit it's late. Not, indeed. Uh, there, were a few, there were a few setbacks. Yeah. Can you share a little bit? So what was in, in the mind of you, Tiss, younger self? I don't know what age did you picture when I asked you the question? I pictured like 18, 
19, post-college, because it was post-college where I became fixated with making music. And it was post-college that I actually started to develop my own aspirations to have a career in the music industry. And, and back then, I, kind of, I knew how talented I was and some of the people that I was connected and networked, networking with was. And I think we were so, so consumed with a lot of the media that we was watching at the time that was glamorizing the lifestyle and the glorious things that you could get if you can just have that break. I think we were, I was really fixated on that. And there was, a lot of, there was a lot of people in London at the time, especially from the black communities, that were making those transitions. So it was seeming like it was more and more realistic mm. as time went on. And, uh, but on the contrary, I was also very stubborn. I was addicted to quick money. I wanted fast results. And I lived every day. I lived dead one day at a time, not really planning thus far ahead. I was more just... I was more just wishful that if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to make it pretty soon. I think there was a lot of delusion in my life when I was that age about what I was going to have to do to accomplish my goals. I thought they would have come easier at the time. And I suppose that's you know got something to do with being a little bit naive. You were clear about wanting to do, to make a career in music. And, and I'm curious, what made you clear about it? You mentioned the, the glamour right, of, and seeing people who made it, mm-hmm. and that's an attraction. What else was making you want to have such a career? Diving into the music, music production, and going to college and doing music production, it was the first time that I felt like I was a high achiever in my academics. Prior to that, most of the courses that I did, I struggled for various reasons, but it was when I actually went and did music tech that I started to get mm. high marks and I found the work easy, so to speak, and more kind of more enjoyable. I realized that there was something that I was potentially good at and actually something that I could excel in. And because given I went through my whole of my secondary school period, right up to my GCSEs, didn't really do as well as I know I could have if I maybe have tried hard or I had a bit more support in my life from certain, certain absent people. And... Yeah, so to then go through my first year at college doing performing arts, I didn't enjoy it. I struggled with the literature to then fall into music tech. And in my first year of music tech, I got straight distinctions. And, you know, that, you know, that made me feel quite accomplished and it glued me to the subject. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like there was almost perfect combination of I'm good at it. I enjoy it. And I... And there was something else that you said. It suited the lifestyle. And it suited the lifestyle. There was... Yeah, the lifestyle aspirations. Yeah. At the time. You were living a bit by the day. You, you, you were, you know, maybe I use the word naive in terms of how quickly you could achieve your goals. What were your... My goals were fixated around money. I was selling cannabis at the time. So like, and I was selling quite a lot of weed, to be fair. And, and all the money that I made, I was just putting into my music, buying microphones, buying equipment, just building up the resources that I needed so that I can do what I wanted to do. Some might say, why don't you just get a job? Lord knows, I tried. I never really ever found it easy to sell myself at that age. So um, trying to get a job or keep a job was always difficult for me. Um, Mm. I, I I did work for a few people that took me for granted. There was one occasion when I was working, doing some labor and work, and the guy that was supposed to pay me 
he did a runner and didn't pay anybody. And I had worked for a good a good number of months. And to be fair, when I looked out of my window in my neighborhood, the young people that seemed to be enjoying their lives were the ones who were selling drugs and had money. There's only so many times as a young person you can compare yourself to people who are doing something and not fall in line and do it yourself. You know what I mean? Especially when the infrastructure at home isn't built for you to really succeed. It's designed for you to survive and be grateful with your survival. And that's no, that's not throwing any shade at, at my parents at all. You know what I mean? To each their own. And they did their, they did, they've done their part. It's time for me to do my part. But yeah, making money was my motivator. And doing music was a way of expressing myself. Um, and I was very, I was an angry person when I was younger. Some might say that wasn't the case, but I did have a lot of pent up anger when I was younger and it just manifests itself in the streets, to be frank. Yeah. And so your music were, was your, your passion. And, and so how, how were you expressing it? What were you actually doing? So you were buying equipment with the money. I was making beats at first, making instrumentals and beats for other people to sing and rap over. I had artists within my estate and my community that were coming to work with me on songs, coming to me with their own ideas to record their songs, coming to me for beats, saying, saying that they wanted to record some songs over my beats. And, and that's what we did, to be fair. We, we got high and made music. <laughs> and culturally, it was fun. But for me, it always I was always fascinated with people like in America, rappers in America, like Mob Deep and Nas and Jay-Z and all of these influential Black people that were making a living from from the music and because of how well marketed it, it was dangled in our face that you know, black people can actually have a career in the music business. Rappers, sure. people that come from the streets can have a sustainable career in a legitimate field through music. It really fascinated me and I was hooked on the notion. So you were selling drugs, okay? You were fixated on the money, but the money served a purpose, right? It wasn't like buying fancy cars or like doing fancy stuff, it was, doing music essentially yeah. money Sorry. for me was about um undoing all of the the setbacks that came as a result of not having money watching my mum struggle like there's times when we'll all be home i might be playing my nintendo or whatever and the electricity cuts out i'm in the middle of a game i haven't saved it for the past half an hour i'm screaming at my mom like mom the electricity she's like sorry it's run out i don't have any money and she might go next door and ask for, can you lend a tenner? So it's, it's just growing up and seeing a real saying, you know what, I've had enough of this struggle. Like, I need to make money. And if I can't get a job, then I'm just going to follow suit with what everyone else is doing because they've been doing it for ages. And it's, I yeah. think most young people fall into that trap. History repeats itself, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's been a good 15 plus years. And today I see young people that are doing the exact same thing I was doing when I was their age. Mm. So on your music, so you were making beats, recording with people. So what was going on there in terms of the goal of making it? I didn't have any industry contacts and I grew up in, in, in a far part of West London, which didn't really get much attention from media or from the music industry. It was always East London and, and South London and and some parts of Northwest London that would get a lot of engagement mm. from the industry. But where I came from, we didn't get that much engagement. I didn't have any knowledge of the music business whatsoever. We didn't have digital media resources. 
like like we do today and so my ideas were limited we did i did host a series of events like just music even music nights raves or whatever you want to call it and the first one that i held no one turned up you live and you learn the second one i held most of the people in my community and surrounding communities came out and then the third one we hold we packed it out and yeah i think before i could actually officially release music properly i was getting in trouble in other areas of my life so they were conflicting and i didn't do as much then as i could have and so what happened i suppose gang culture started to take shape in 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 the uk and london and just like in the states how you've got the red gangs and blue gangs etc that that kind of color separation or divide within our community started to really happen in the uk especially in 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 my area as well and violence started to increase a lot of people that had grown up together were falling out for whatever reason and there was a lot of distrust within our community i was a victim of knife crime and got i got stabbed in the face five times friend of mine got shot um, other friends of mine were brutally restrained by police and actually effectively assaulted by police and i think yeah like tensions were just high in the community and mm. uh, a young man in my state was murdered um he was stabbed to death and to be fair he was an innocent party he wasn't even involved in all of the street politics but he got caught up in the middle and his death really tore the whole state apart as you can imagine his whole family and i probably in in fairness did blame the estate and the culture of the estate and some of us for what happened and yeah things just got really bad because of us because of the activities that we were involved in and the criminal activities that we were involved in the council and the police targeted our parents and said in some cases accused them of allowing their children to commit criminal activities under their roof but i don't personally think that was fair of them to do that there was a lot of evictions so you know my my household my mum she got evicted from her home as a result of a lot of the stuff that was going on and my involvement and i moved out of my estate but was trapped in a cycle where i was in so deep i couldn't really get out and the whole music thing just stopped the equipment was just sitting there and yeah day to day i was literally just running around collecting drugs dropping drugs off trying to make money trying to keep up with the lies trying to keep up with everything you know what i mean and it was getting quite bad if i'm honest it was getting quite bad and i think even for myself i spent at that time i lost most of my motivation if i wasn't selling drugs or making money i was smoking weed and playing video games to try and numb the confusion and yeah that's that's where i hit i didn't really have any control over my life or what i was doing i was just caught in a cycle a vicious cycle and a lot of my mates were the same just running around day by day trying to make as much money in a day as possible just to survive mm okay yeah and then what and then i ended up in prison i got caught in um east london with quite a lot of money and large quantities of class A drugs it it didn't belong to me i was actually just being paid to go and collect something and and bring it back but i believe that the person that i was going to meet was under observation and in me meeting with them with him the police hopped out on us and arrested us i knew right then at that point 
I was going to prison. It was a large quantity of class A. It was a kilo of class A drugs and the equivalent in cash. And yeah, I just, I knew straight away I was going to prison. There was, I got caught red-handed. There was no way I was going to talk my way out of it. And I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to dub the people in who it belonged to for two factors, just because I was always raised that you don't do that. And the other factor is I was scared that if I did do that, my family would still be living in the community and I wouldn't want them to be targeted for, for, for me doing that. So I kept my no. mouth shut when they questioned me. I said no comment the whole time. And yeah, that was it really. I accepted when, they, when I had to plead innocent or guilty, I pleaded guilty to conspiracy to supply class A. And I just accepted my fate, to, to be fair. Yeah. And how long did you get? I got four and a half years. So I did two years and three months. But for the first 10 months, I was remanded. So for 10 months, I was in prison and I had no idea how long I was going to be in there for. I was just there for 10 months. So it took 10 months for me to get closure. Yeah. So you said earlier you hit rock bottom before prison mm -hmm. and so how was prison prison was a bit of a relief because mm. i felt like i was a bit of a mule i was at everyone else's beck and call i didn't really have that much control over my life i had a phone and every time it would ring i would have to answer i'd have to be in a place where i was told to be like if i wanted to just sleep I, I, I couldn't, like, when I was needed to be somewhere, do something, I had to do it. Like, I was indebted to some people and, yeah, I was living at, by, by their standards and their command. And being in prison took me out of that. It freed me from their control, in a sense. And it put me in a new playing field where I would have to redefine who I was. So there was a sense of relief going to prison because mm. it all stopped. Like, Lord knows I slept a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and I had to I had a lot of time to think about what my future was going to be and obviously it was my first time going to prison I haven't been back for a second time let me add it was my first time in prison obviously I had certain fears about being there so I had to come to to some conclusion on what this experience was going to was going to be like for me and it didn't take that long to be fair maybe about a month maybe less to to get a bit settled in and I made I'd say I didn't I made friends in jail but they're not it wasn't like sustaining friendships it was just friendships in that moment in that period whilst you're there you get along with these people and I quickly came to the realization that if there was one thing that I could gain from being here it was educating myself in ways that I lacked prior I could make up for not getting maths as a GCSE English as a GCSE because I had they had equivalent equivalent courses that I could do to get my equivalent certificates to a grade B in maths, for example, or literature, English communication skills. And I just thought, what, where being a 19 year old and going to college and having to pay for elements of that college out of your own pocket, I realized how expensive it was for an adult to try and get an education. I was in prison, the education was free, so I lapped it up. Sure. I wonder, landing in prison, you said you had a lot of pent up anger in what made you turn that switch on of, I want to redefine myself, I'm going to use this as an opportunity? I don't know. I'm an opportunist. And like electricity, I, I latch on to things that 
I think are good for me. And in prison, I got better at identifying things that were good for me compared to things that are not good for me. Whereas when I was younger, I was latching onto things that I thought were good for me, but really they were bad for me. I started reading in prison. I read my first book in prison. I mean, I could read, but I did have a fear of reading because I wasn't a competent reader. So I didn't like reading, but I also wasn't a fan of television. I just found British television to be quite dull and boring for me in, in, in many ways. So I picked up a book at the library and started reading after I, I read my first book it was a horror novel and I've been into horror films for most of my childhood life to be fair it's one of those weirdos that like scary movies but after that I asked I asked my sister if she could get me some books I, I met some guys in prison that were reading certain books and they were talking to me about these books that they were reading on financial intelligence and and personal development and I thought yeah I'll read some of these books my sister's dad he is a good man and he got some books that he thought I should read. So I read some of these books and they opened my eyes a little bit, to be fair. I read I read a book called Redemption about the, the life of Stanley Tookie Williams, who was a notorious gang member in L.A., part of the Crips gang. He, he wrote books on gang culture, which sold worldwide, won Nobel Peace Prizes and even had an audience with Winnie Mandela who travelled all the way to the States to go and see him um, during his yep. incarceration. And his story kind of put my circumstances into perspective. This man was on death row for something he claims he didn't do. And he found mental emancipation. Like he, he managed to free his mind. He, re- he let go of all the anger and he just found happiness and peace within himself. And his circumstances he was on a I think he got like two consecutive life sentences at like a hundred years each it was like 200 years or something like that so he knew he was never coming home and if he had kids he weren't ever really going to be a father to them again and at the end of this this sentence he was gonna see death by lethal injection and I was sitting in a a London-based prison with a television in my room and food being provided, clothes being provided, and man them around me that I could banter with. And it just made me realize that my circumstances weren't all that bad. And yeah, I stopped feeling sorry for myself and just started to be like, where do I go from here? And I thought to myself, I'm always gonna have all of these negative things that are gonna weigh up against me. People will always judge me based on my my, my criminal background and my mistakes. but if I can't erase them, maybe I can outshadow them. Maybe I can outweigh them. Maybe if my mistakes and my negative, the negative aspects of my life were weighing about 10 kilograms, maybe I can have about 20 or 30 kilograms of positive stuff that completely outweighs the negative. So that's when I, when I came to that realization, that's when I started just focusing on educating myself. I realized that I spent most of my teenagehood thinking that I knew what I was talking about and I wanted to change that. I, I, I realised that education wasn't a chore or, an, or, or social expectation. It was a responsibility. Mm. And mm. if you want to accomplish anything in your life, you're going to need to be educated in it, whatever it is you want to do. If you want to roll, a, if you want to smoke a spliff, you're going to need to educate yourself into how to roll it. But if you want to if you want to buy a car, you're going to need to educate yourself so that you can get the license and then educate yourself that you can actually 
operate the vehicle. You know what I mean? These are, and I, I come to realize that I, sh I, I didn't apply the same kind of concepts when I was at school. I always thought school was something you had to do yeah. and I would rather do something else. And in prison, I realized that actually education is a choice and you use it like you use any other tools um, to better yourself. And I didn't come to that realization until I was in my you know, early 20s and in, and in prison. So you mentioned earlier, you decided to redefine yourself. So education sounds like uh, really foundational in that redefinition. Was there anything else? What do you mean? Is there, is there anything like, else? Was there a goal that attracted you and made you think, okay, this is what I want when I come out of prison, or I want to go back to music, or I want to, I don't know, was there like, certain aspirations or values that you wanted to embody when you talk about redefining yourself? And that's pretty big, uh, pretty big endeavor. At the time, it was all about just educating myself, if I'm honest. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got out of prison. I didn't know what, what society would allow me to do when I got out of prison. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I didn't want prison life to define me for the rest of my life I wanted to I definitely wanted to get back into music music is in my blood it's a bit of a cliche to say but it is I've I've been doing music most of my life and I don't think I'm ever going to stop doing music ever and so yes there's definitely a, a fire inside me that was holding on to the idea of having some kind of a career in music when I got out Especially when I was inside and watching all of these artists, like the likes of Gigs and and who else was there at the time? There's so many. I'm not going to start naming all the names, but there were so many artists that were coming out of different communities that I knew of and I had some kind of affiliation to. And I was seeing them blow up and I was just like, I just, yeah, I still need to be a part of this success because it's happening right in front of my face. I think in the terms of me wanting to redefine myself it was I don't think there was anything specific because I didn't really know what I wanted to do I was just latching on to different courses and programs I took it all as it came enhanced thinking behavior and <clears throat> all these different courses that they threw at me in prison I did a lot and the one that stuck out to me the most was a radio production diploma that they were offering in Brixton Prison at the time. The Prison Radio Association was based there and they were, you know, they were established as a charity to, to produce and deliver radio, prison radio to prisoners. And I got involved in that. But someone else said to me, you know, that you've got the whole music production background, you should go and do the radio. And I was like, eh. And then I thought about it and I thought, well, to be honest, it's the closest thing to music that I'm going to get in prison. And... Radio has always been an aspect of the music business that I've never really had much knowledge of. So I thought it can't be a bad thing. So I signed up to it and I had to wait a few months before I could actually get on the program. And you had to stay clean. We had to basically not be in trouble for at least three months before you could be accepted on the program. I got into trouble, not because I actually did anything, but there was a bit of a situation in the prison where a riot kind of broke out Everyone was just running around like mad people. The officers were actually under a lot of pressure. And this officer came to me and was shouting at me, telling me to get in my cell, but the cell was locked. And obviously as a prisoner, I never had keys. I was telling him to open the door. He was accusing me of refusing to go in my cell. I wasn't sure what he was getting at, if he was 
if he really didn't think the door was open or if he was trying to antagonise the situation, I couldn't really tell. But eventually I started shouting at him and he got in my face. I told him why what he was doing made no sense. The door's locked. You're telling me to walk through a locked door. It makes no sense. So he actually opened the door and then I barged into my cell and slammed the door in his face. He slammed my door back open. The TV fell off the stand and broke. Like I offered him out. I said, look, if you're gonna, if you want to come in here and have a fight with me, then come in and we'll get it going. Otherwise, just close my door because this is ridiculous. So then he would close my door. I've got a red entry against my name. The guy from the radio station come to see me to ask what happened, said, ah, oh, we can't have you on the station. You're going to have to sit down for another three months. And it was at that point that I realised there's always going to be an opportunity for me to mess things up. And I need to be prepared to make the positive choice. I need to be slow to react so that I can assess situations, that I can make positive choices. And I said, this is never going to happen to me again for the rest of my prison sentence. Because if I can have a PlayStation in my cell, I want it. If I can have a stereo in my cell, I want it. If I can go to a decap prison where I get to go home from time to time, I want access to that too. If I want those things, I need to be mindful to protect my ability to have those things. So I didn't allow anyone to put me in a situation, a vulnerable situation, or I didn't allow myself to respond negatively to any situations that could get me in trouble from that moment onwards. I just focused. And then eventually I got on the radio station, the level one entry, the level one entry course i aced the level two course they didn't offer the level three course but i asked for it they inquired they said yes i I aced the level three course and then i stayed on at the prison for a year and did a series of interviews i interviewed jonathan aitken the former cabinet minister under tony blair i think he was he served the custodial sentence i can't remember what year it was now but he served the custodial sentence a, a good few years ago for perjury and perverting the course of justice, he came in to talk to me about his experiences and the comparison of his compared to mine, given our two different, completely different walks of life. That got a lot of media interest outside of the prison and did some really was really good press for the Prison Radio Association. And even just in doing all of these interviews, I developed quite a strong vocabulary. I, I, did, I conducted a lot of interviews with, who else did I interview? Chris Shiflett. The lead guitarist from the Foo Fighters came to the prison. I couldn't believe it, but I got to interview him. That was massive. I was a fan of the Foo Fighters. I didn't listen to their music all the time, but I did like their songs. And I would listen to their songs from time to time, especially once having met him and interviewed him. I interviewed Terry Waite, who was held captive in, in Lebanon. And he had a real profound story to tell about being held against his will, uh, being imprisoned in another country in aid of a good cause. And he was he was a big name to come in and talk to me. I interviewed a couple of politicians. Why did they come? Why did, how come they came and talked to you? It was all to do with the, the radio station where had contacts. The radio station was making an impact in, in, in kind of London radio. They were making a name for themselves in the radio industry. And people wanted to come and talk to us. People were like... So, so the radio station was in Brixton prison yes and it was listened to only in prison at the time it was sorry it was listened to in Brixton prison alone at the time okay yeah but now they are it's it's national oh wow so um, now it's listened to in in a, a, a very high volume of prisons across the country but at the time they were submitting um audio 
to different radio competitions and I won a few awards for the radio stuff that I've done. I won two Sony Radio Academy Awards, one in 2009, one in 2010. After I left Brixton, I went to High Point Prison, which is in Newmarket, Norfolk, which is quite far from London, if you've never really left London before. But whilst I was there, I got released for the day to go to the Sony Awards Conference in Nottingham to be interviewed about the work that I was doing. So, like, I was... My, I was baffled how I accomplished that, but I got, I remember the prison officer said the prison governor at High Point Prison came to my cell and even she was perplexed at how I managed to accomplish getting a, a release for one day. And it came from above her. So she had to just do as she was told and release me for the day. And she warned me, she said, if you do anything stupid or you mess this up, I'm going to make sure you end up back here and your stay won't be comfortable. And I didn't care for any of that because that was never my intention. I went to the awards. I got interviewed on stage. I spoke my part. I said my piece. I I got handed an award. And for me, it was all just a bit of a blur. I'm not going to lie. I, I, was just, I was just happy to be out for the day. I think people were more impressed with me than I was. I don't think I realized the, the significance of the situation. Yeah. I can imagine, right? I mean, I don't know how long you had been in prison already, but just like a day out. Is... Yeah, I been in just about a year and a half just mm. over a year and a half i'd been in cool so you got the level three radio how do, how do you call it like a level three, um, level three radio production diploma radio production diploma and you got an award clearly the radio station was getting traction i don't know how much did you enjoy it massively yeah massively i looked forward to it every single day um, if I'm honest, and the other men who was working in, on the radio station, they did too. There were times when we might have got up in the morning ready to go to the radio station and the officers say, oh, you can't go over there at the moment. Um, you're going to have to wait. For whatever reason, there's something happening in the prison or whatever. And it was very disappointing when that would happen. Like, very disappointing. Plus, the staff that we worked with, they were just, they were cool people. Like, they, were, they didn't judge us. They were clearly passionate about what they were doing. And they were easy to work with. And there was a couple of women that worked there too. So it made us feel half normal to be socializing mm. and working in a working environment with, with, with women as well. And they, these women weren't officers. They weren't there to lock, up, to lock us up or anything. They were there to do radio, to make radio, to produce radio and to work with us. And yeah, I think I was on the, I was probably on the, working on the station for about maybe eight months, maybe a little bit more. And in that time, you just developed quite a strong relationship with the people. And when you was there, it felt like work. It didn't feel like you was in prison. It didn't feel like that at all. You just felt like you was at work and you was away from the prison for the period that you was, that you was in the radio station and doing the work. And then because we had guests that were coming in quite regularly, it, it just felt very normal in comparison to sitting in your cell. Yeah, and doing something that others listen to. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how much, how much did you get from being of service. You were serving something to others, right? People were listening to you. Yeah, people, when I'd go back to the cell, people would come and speak to me and say, yo, I heard you on the radio, that subject you was talking about, like they would have an opinion and want to talk to me about it. If I play a certain song, that somebody might come out and be like, yo, bro, that song that you played, that song is sick. Um, I beg you play it again tomorrow. Or other people would have requests. i say, oh, listen, I've got a few requests. Can you play this song? Can you play this song? And then I can go back and, and go and get that. You become somewhat of a public figure. People start to recognise your voice. And it's mad because years later, after I got released from prison, I'd been out of prison for years. And I still get people who have 
who've come out of prison and say, yo, hey, Tis, I heard your voice on the radio in prison. This is like five, six, seven, eight years after my release. People are still hearing my, my voice on prison, in prison and saying, but when they're in prison, they hear my voice like, yo, I know that guy, that's my virgin. So it's like the work I was doing back then is still affecting people and impacting people's lives even today. So, but I, I yeah. guess that's the beauty of radio. So they replay some yeah. of, the, of the stuff yeah. you recorded, yeah. And so I heard you say, so you were doing interviews, you were playing music, of course, but you were also talking about certain topics. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about, a lot of the time we were talking about different topics that were, that would affect the men. A lot of men would write into the, the radio station requesting us to talk about certain topics and would ask the radio station to bring certain professionals in from the outside to talk on these different topics. So, Can you give an example? Mental health being one, suicide being another one, parenthood, fatherhood. Okay, so to, like big topics. Yeah, topics that would directly affect the men's behavior in prison. Mm. We spoke about excessive use of force in prisons because it, it happens more often than it should. We spoke about drugs in prison. And how did you talk about all of those topics? They're very sensitive, emotionally you know, charged topics. It was you with other people. It was a panel discussion. Yeah, so it, it would be me with other people, me with some of the other radio presenters, the other male, other prisoners. I would speak with them. We weren't allowed to use the internet. But the people that were the people that were running the radio station, they were allowed to use the internet. They would do research for us and then would print off the research and give us the research. So any information, anything that they needed, we needed them to Google, they would go away. They would Google things and print off what they find and bring it back to us. And that enabled us to actually do some research and to look into things. Any videos and stuff that they wanted us to watch, they would they would get the videos and downloaded and then they would bring it in and let us watch it. And then we, we were able to then speak on certain things. We didn't just do interviews in person. We did a lot of interviews over the phone. So we had a lot of callings. So we mm -hmm. were able to speak to different professionals in, in, different, in different environments, even speaking to certain people at the job center who would call in to talk to us about what the different options were for men who were coming out unemployed and needed the support from the job center. Housing, we would speak to certain professionals. Again, they would call in, we'd have interviews talking about what the different housing options are, what the different support that men can get when they're actually coming out of prison and trying to resettle in their community. A lot of these topics, it, it wasn't just like, it wasn't coming from a radio station who thought that these were the things we should talk about. These were the prisoners who were telling us, this is what we want to, yeah. this is what we want to talk about. This is the yeah. stuff we want to we understand. It, it made it very organic and very authentic. Yeah. And in a way you were enabling the education of others, right? Because you were giving really useful information on topics that they really cared for. Yeah, we even had a, it was a little bit controversial, but we had like a micro, like a, a kind of fire in the booth type thing in the prison. And this is before, before BBC and Charlie Sloss fire in the booth series. This is going quite far back where we would have prisoners that just wanted to jump on a microphone. They just want to hear a beat and just wanted to rap. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of controversy from the senior prison staff concerning, well, concerns about facilitating the men to to make music that would glorify some of the reasons why they were in prison but we were able to get them to see the benefits of actually just giving them a platform to express themselves it's not like the music was going to be uploaded to the internet it was more for it was more for the prisoners to be able to have an outlet 
and they did have to recite their lyrics to the manager to the radio management so the management could approve or disapprove and some of the things that was going to be said it was radio we had to keep it clean so if they swore it'd get beeped out anyway and then it was broadcast on the radio stations on the radio station within in the prison walls and again a lot of people would talk about that you'd come back out of the radio station go back to your wing and then people would talk about yo my man went in like yo i need to jump on the radio can you get me on the radio and it, it just it gave everybody not just an incentive but a something to look forward to and a meaningful outlet and it gave us all something to speak about and in a sense it brought people together in so many ways let me not don't let's not let me not confuse the situation prison isn't like a walk in the park emotionally there's a lot of emotional uh, stress and emotional depression and there's a lot of anger and a lot of people get attacked. It just is what it is. But at mm. the same time, we were accomplishing something and it was evident in the way that people were responding to the work that we was doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. It sounds like, uh, like foundational in many ways, right? Because you already had shifted your mindset to, I want to educate myself. And then suddenly you become the guy who in a way educates or facilitates the education of others even yeah. at the same time. Because when you start to research topic on, I don't know, fatherhood, drug usage or <clears throat> whatever, and you need to be on the panel and talking about it, the bar suddenly is high on, it's not, I'm not educating just myself. Suddenly I've got to be able to, you know, really know what I'm talking about. So the, you, you, you must have gained so much knowledge and, and I guess just perspective. Yeah. During that time. I did. So, so you, re you redefine yourself, education being like the sort of key direction. Mm -hmm. and, and then what happened after prison? I don't know. You said you, you stayed there for two years and, and a half, you said earlier, two years and three months? Yeah, two years and three months. And then I got out and I was homeless. And right, you were homeless. Yeah. You didn't have like a... a I wasn't a, on the streets, but I didn't have a home of my own. I decided to not moved back to my old neighborhood I went back to my old neighborhood for a week or two just to catch up with old friends but I wanted to stay away the main incentive for me wanting to stay away is because I got offered a job before the end of my prison sentence I was I ended up at an open prison so I was able to come out and work so I was able to get a voluntary role in a local community and I was able to come out every day and work and I worked at the British Red Cross in the local town. And then I, I managed to land myself a voluntary role, classical music educational establishment. So it, it's a concert hall, but it was also a, where they trained classical musicians. It's world renowned, Snake Moltings is called, Obra Music. And I did, I was involved in some workshops that would allow me to support young people with learning disabilities to engage in music to help them develop themselves and develop their communicational skills and stuff like that. And yeah. can, can, can we pause here? There are quite a few important things that you were saying that are like, okay, first of all, so you found this work for the Red Cross and that pays the bills, which I don't know if you have any bills to pay, but you said you're home. No, where, so where are you living? When I was working, I wasn't out of prison. I was still in prison, but I was, an, I was at an open prison. So I was volunteering every single day, coming out of prison and volunteering at the Red Cross and then going back to prison and it was, that was my daily routine. Yeah. Uh, it's a resettlement prison. And then... But why are you volunteering instead of working? I could get work, but I, you either had to find work or you had to apply for jobs through the prison resettlement 
department. As you can imagine, jobs for prisoners in a resettlement prison are quite in high demand. So there was more prisoners than there were jobs available. Prisoners were also allowed to find jobs themselves. They were Prisoners were allowed to have their own cars and drive themselves to work and drive themselves back. But it didn't happen quickly. A lot of this stuff would take time. You'd be waiting months before you even got an interview. And if you was going to find a job for yourself, again, you'd have to know the local area and you'd have to you'd have to have someone that would want to employ a person who's still in serving a custodial sentence. So it wasn't an easy thing to achieve. The radio station at Brixton, they con- they got in contact with me when I was at this, this resettlement prison and they were just wanting to see how I was getting on. So they, they contacted the prison and asked the prison if they could speak to me, if they called the resettlement department could they bring me to the resettlement department so I could have a conversation with them? And I did that. And they said that they had a contact at this uh, Snake Maltings, Oba Music, and they thought that there's a lot that I had to offer and it would be a great opportunity for them and a great opportunity for myself if I maybe did some voluntary work with them. So they put me in contact. I spoke to a lady, I won't say her name, but I spoke to this lady and she then came to see me at, at the prison. She interviewed me and after the interview, she felt... Um, satisfied that she wanted to give me an opportunity so they invited me to come to the place the music place for one day to come and see the program that they wanted me to work on and to see if it if I thought it would be something that I wanted to do and for them to see how I got on with with the young people and yeah I had a great day it was very productive after that they said look we're gonna we want to offer you a voluntary position to come here so I went there once a week, every Wednesday, and then Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I was at the British Red Cross. So I was volunteering and I could have looked for paid work, but I, I just didn't, I didn't care. I was happy with where I was and what I was doing. And then by the time I got released, by the time I was getting released, maybe a month before I got released, the music um, organisation said that they would like to offer me a short term contract upon my release. So there was my incentive to not go back to London because mm. I thought these guys are offering me a job. Why am I going to turn it down to go to London and look for a job? So I stayed in, in Suffolk and I worked at this place for 12 months. And then after my contract ended, um, it didn't get renewed, but they gave me a really strong reference, which helped me land my next job. Yeah. And, and so... At that during this time, you were resettling, you were coming out of prison, you had this job, this short-term job. What was your mindset regarding what you wanted to do of your life, of your career? I was still doing a course. I did um, an NVQ level three in advice and guidance. And I started that when I was in prison and it continued once my once I got released from prison. So I was doing... I was still doing that course. So I was focused around completing that course. And I was potentially looking at maybe a career in working with young people that are at risk of offending behavior, maybe doing some kind of mentorship. I still had a desire to do music, but I was fresh out of prison. I didn't have no money. I was sleeping on um, the sofa of of a friend that I had made whilst working in volunteering at the British Red Cross. He, He allowed me to stay at his house until I found myself somewhere to live. I put myself on the registration for a local hostel and it took about maybe two to three months for me to actually get a spot in that hostel. During that period, I was just trying to take it one step at a time. I wanted to get my passport. 
I wanted to get my driver's license. I had to go probation. So obviously my probation officer was was keeping me busy with certain things that she wanted me to do in terms of my resettlement. My main focus was to establish my independence. I wasn't thinking as far ahead as what do I want to do in my life. I was thinking I need to get a roof over my head. I need to get my driver's license. I need to save up so I can get a car. I need yeah. to save up for my deposit. Yeah, the, get the, the fundamental stuff sorted. Yeah. Yeah, and th- these are the things that were my main focus. I, I struggled to find work for obvious reasons. And when people would say, what is your background? I'll tell them I've been to prison, I'm on probation. And obviously a lot of people would be like, look, you know what? Um, we're not really going to be, we won't be making you an offer. We're not looking for anyone at this time. And yes, it's quite disheartening when you go from door to door trying to find work and they turn you down. And you almost think like it's a complete lost cause. But I was so motivated. I was like, what? If I'm not going to work for money, I will work for free. I will volunteer. Like, I just want to work. I don't I just want, I want, a, I want, I want a purpose. I want to do something meaningful. So I found a few local charity organizations that I could work for. One of them being CSV, which was Community Service Volunteers. So yep. it, and it was a, a media branch of this charity. So they focused a lot of their work around radio, again, music production, creative writing, and they had you know different women groups um, and youth groups um, and mentorship schemes. I walked in there and I asked to speak to one of the managers and he, he set up a meeting with me to come back. I came back, had a meeting with him, told him a little bit about my, myself, told him about my accomplishments. I showed him my CV because I had a decent CV with all the stuff that I had done in prison. And they said that they were definitely looking for more volunteers and they let me volunteer. And in volunteering for them, many other volunteering opportunities came up. Um, and, and then I continued working for the Prison Radio Association. They contacted me saying, look, you know what? We want to see if we can do something with you where you're still producing radio that we can broadcast in prison. So we came up with this idea. There's a magazine, a prison magazine called Inside Out. So we came up with this idea of Outside In. And it was basically me being on the outside, bringing information to prisoners on the inside. And I did it for, you know, about maybe 10 months and it took off massively. I was, the organization that I was volunteering for allowed me to use their radio studio for free in return for my volunteering service. I got X amount of hours. And with those hours, I was producing radio on a regular basis and sending it back to Prison Radio Association to them to then broadcast it. So yeah. I was still... No, I was just saying, cool. No, it's cool. But at the same time, I think about, and it's really hard to put myself into your shoes, but you come out of prison, you knew that, okay, selling drugs was an easy way of making money. Okay. It sucked. You were in the vicious cycle. You had hit rock bottom, but then you're faced with the difficulty of really getting back and getting a roof over your head getting your passport, your driving license, finding a job that pays the bills, any bills. I I just wonder how, and then you decide to volunteer. And I'm like, because you want to do something that's meaningful and with purpose. Do you mind just elaborating this a little more? I was on benefits. So I got housing benefits. I was on job seekers allowance. So I had state income that that helped me to to survive. But Whilst I was earning those benefits, what I didn't want to, I wasn't going to just sit on my ass and, and do nothing. And in many cases, the reason for me volunteering was because, you know, selling drugs in my kind of teenage days, I would always wake up and have this mindset of, 
what's in it for me. Every day I woke, I woke up, I always wanted to know what I was going to get out of this day. I never really thought about what I was going to contribute to it. I was always just obsessed with what I was going to get out of it. And I came to the realisation that knowing your self-worth and knowing what you have to offer makes you a stronger competitor. And I, I didn't learn that until I started volunteering. People were valuing me for what I was contributing, even though I wasn't making no money, but I started getting massive opportunities as a result of my volunteering. And within two years, people were throwing jobs at me. And volunteering for me, it put me in a position, in a strong position, it gave me leverage because I was able to demonstrate that I had something that people wanted. And without an opportunity to demonstrate that I had something that people wanted, I wouldn't have been able to receive certain opportunities that were coming my way. Yeah. And um, I won awards for my volunteering. I won Adult Volunteer of the Year Award for 2012. I won Adult Learner of the Year Award 2012 in Suffolk. And I won awards in, in, in my work with the Prince's Trust. I got involved with the Prince's Trust, an organisation that supports young people back into employment and education. And uh, working with the Prince's Trust, I just I developed a bit more confidence in myself they paid for me to do public speaking training because they saw that I had a knack for it and they wanted to, they wanted me to go out and speak about a lot of the experiences that I had and the work that I was doing I did an enterprise program and learned about business I did a business GCSE course when I was in prison anyway so the enterprise program was just me brushing up on my business understanding and, and it was at that point that I realized that I wanted to I wanted to build a recording studio I didn't have the money I wasn't going to go back to selling drugs to make the money. The enterprise program allowed me to, to sit down with a business mentor and I, I had the opportunity to apply for a business loan, a kickstart loan from the Prince's Trust to help me get my business started. So they loaned me £3,000 and I built a home recording studio and I started running a, a, a studio from out of my bed, out of my living room. And but all of this came through volunteering. I, started, I was giving speeches at different events. I was getting booked to talk at different events up and down the country, whether it talk about youth unemployment, whether it was talking about prison, whether it was talking about life after prison. And uh, I gave a speech at, at one event in London, which was all about low aspirations in young people and youth unemployment. And one of the guys that was there, he approached me and said, do you know what? You speak really well. I'd like to book you to come and speak at my event in St. Helens near Liverpool. Um, I'm not going to lie, I was a bit of a conspiracy theorist. I, I was obsessed with the whole Illuminati theory at the time. So I was a bit reluctant because I was like, here's this like this older white guy with a suit who's just heard me speak and now he's just giving me his card and jetted off and I'm supposed to call him. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be nobody's bloody token. So I was still a bit, I was a bit cautious and a bit wary I, I didn't know these people these people had money and they had their lives together and when I was talking people the way they would look at me was like they saw something and it made mm. me feel uncomfortable and and made me feel a little bit yeah it just made me feel a little bit vulnerable but he went out of his way I just didn't bother calling but he went out of his way to find me and he called around the prince's trust for about a month trying to find me um, and eventually he found me um, and I got so a phone call seeing you Huh? Do you think? What, what did they see in you, those people? There was public speaking, but there was more, right? You did lots of different types of volunteering. Yeah, I was outspoken. Like, I wasn't afraid to say my to say what I thought, regardless who was in the room. I would challenge people, and I spoke from the heart. So I was always just 
authentic and real in what I was saying. I suppose that just resonated a lot. And I was, you have to remember, I did music, I did performing arts at college and I was good at drama. So if you put me in front of a stage of people, like I'm very comfortable, like I will talk, I'll be very charismatic and I'll be very articulate with my gestures and and very animated so I, I think maybe just some of those elements just resonated with with other people and he himself he said specifically I made a point and he thought my point was spot on there was a panelist of people I think this, even one of the CEOs from WH Smith I think was or Marks and Spencers was there and there was like this this 16 year old boy who broke a record of becoming a millionaire at a certain age or whatever he was on the panel and there was a question that I posed to them that I already had my own answer for my own theory but I posed the question just curious to see what how their answer would compare to mine what was and the question uh, I can't remember, if I'm honest. It was a long time ago. But if I really wanted to, I could probably find something because I've got all, the, I've got loads of notes and paperwork from all the stuff, but it's all in storage. But I do remember them answering the question and I remember putting my hand up because we weren't, everybody had a pocket to speak. So you had to write your question down and then you got to, they would call out your name and you would answer your question and that was your only opportunity to speak. But I put my hand up and I said, look, can I just speak out of turn? Because I've got a point that I want to make. And the woman said, look, it's a little bit unorthodox, but I'm curious to what you have to say. So she let me speak. And I said my piece. And I think that's what kind of captivated. That's what caught him. And he pulled me aside and was like, look, do you know what? It was daring what you did, but you made a bloody good point. And you, you're actually a very good speaker. I want you to come and talk at my event. And like I said, I was apprehensive. But I got a phone call from a woman who worked at the Prince's Trust that I was very comfortable with and I trusted. And she said to me, do you know this guy? And I was like, yeah, I do. And she's like, she has been phoning my phone for the past week trying to speak to you. Can I give him your number? And I said, don't worry about that. I've got his card on my desk. I'm going to call him because I still had his card just sat there for months. <laughs> I called him and he was just like, oh, I've been trying to get a hold of you. Da, 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 da. And then he said, look, I want to book you to come and talk at my event. It's happening in a few weeks. I'm going to pay for your accommodation. I'm going to pay for your travel. And, and, and you're going to be my guest. And he said, we're going to have music. And then when he said music, I was like, oh, you've got my attention. And I was like, actually, music is what I do. He's like, that's great. And I was like, can I perform? He's like, absolutely. So I was like, sick. So I've got, <laughs> I've got a gig. And I learned in that moment that, yeah, like, I learned in that moment that maybe some of my fears were, were going were gonna to hold me back. And I decided to just stop allowing my fears to define my decision-making. And I brought a friend along with me and she was going to sing with me on this particular song. He gave me an hour slot to just speak about whatever I wanted. He goes, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you talk about. Just, you got, I'm giving you an hour. We've got a very prestigious guest and we're going to have young people from around Manchester and Liverpool. I want you just to speak about whatever you want about yourself. And that's what I did. I, I spoke and then I performed two songs and I raised, I think we raised like within, within, um, within two minutes of me finished speaking, we raised 15 grand in donations. It was the first time I ever received a standing ovation. The guy even, he had a Michelin star chef cooking in the kitchen. He stopped the kitchen. He told them to come out and he stopped the kitchen for like the last half an hour and told them to all come out and listen to me. I had everyone's attention and it was the feeling that I got from that was like out of this world, if I'm honest. It, it, 
and the appreciation that I got afterwards from these people. I had strangers who had never met me, like I had this woman in tears and I just never experienced appreciation or even acknowledgement at that level. And it made me, it was at that point that I realized that maybe I have something here that I can use. And I went on to do many other events as well with the different charities that I was volunteering for. Volunteering, it really, it really, it grew my character profile and I built a very strong reputation for myself amongst the charity sector and some other sectors. The experience you described sounds just incredible. Just the opportunity, the the standing ovation. What was the feeling like, actually? It was overwhelming, and yeah, I was I was blushing. Like I didn't know where to look, I didn't know how to feel, but I just felt appreciated a lot. Yeah. In some cases, too much, and yeah, everybody wanted to talk to me. Like everybody wanted to talk to me. Everybody wanted to have the table that I was sat at. There was this guy who I sat next to, and he was a proper geezer. Um, he was a northerner, though, so he had a, like a, a Liverpoolian accent or something. Or, and there was a girl that performed before me, and she was amazing, yeah? Amazing voice, guitar. She didn't really tell a story. She just she performed, and she blew the whole audience away. He looked at me, and he was like, mate, you got to go after that. He's like, I don't know how you think you're going to beat that. So one second, he was, yeah. He's like, oh, I don't know how you think you're going to beat that. And I said, I'm not going to try. I'm just going to go and do what I came to do. And he was like, all right. He's like, let's see what you do. So, like, the pressure was on. Like, he was putting me under pressure. <laughs> and not just that, because the person who had booked me was, was, was bigging me up a lot to everybody. So the expectation was, like, really high. But I didn't care about the expectation. I said, I'm just going to come and do what I've come to do. And the outcome will be the outcome. I'm not like, and I, I, I said my piece. And even when I went back to my table, he was like, mate, you've completely blown me away. He's like, I didn't know what, I didn't know how you was going to beat what she did, but that was ex- extremely powerful. <laughs> and and what, so what did you talk about? What, when you went there, you said, I'm going to do what I've got to do. What, what did you have to do? What did you want to do? I didn't know what I had to do or what I wanted to say until I was stood on stage I didn't prepare any I just knew that he wanted me to to come and just share and I knew that he was his organization was a major donor to the Prince's Trust so I knew that the cause was about young people I was still a young person I, I also knew that I was there to inspire the other young people so I was in many cases I was talking to them at the back mm. um, I wasn't talking to the millionaires at the front and and if there's one thing I know is that when you're speaking to other people that are going through shit, you can't bullshit. You know what I mean? You can't, you have to just tell it as it is for them to even resonate, for you to resonate with them or build rapport. You just got to keep it real. So that's what I did. I laid it bare. I was very transparent and very vulnerable in some of the things that I was saying. And a lot of them could relate to it. And many of them would never have got up and been so naked to a strange audience and in many cases I never really know what I want to say until I'm staring you in the face so as long as I know what the the, the, the core agenda is when I'm there I, I you know I mingled with a few people I had a few conversations I got a feel for the room I stood up and I had no idea what I wanted to say and I just the first word came out and then it just flowed and based on how people was responding to me would almost direct what, what I would say next or what I would talk about next. But the main thing was about overcoming. It was about, look, 
life is life can be hard and sometimes you get dealt a card that just isn't fair but it doesn't mean that you can't overcome like it really doesn't mean that you can't overcome overcoming our challenges is so realistic especially in a well-built up modern society that we live in you know what I mean like we're actually blessed to have so many different things and like I said reading that book about this guy who was on death row it just made me appreciate the little things like like just even like even having just having having been in a prison where I could have a television and a playstation it just made me appreciate the little things and um that's what I wanted to really share is that if someone like me, who was very stubborn, very lost, very broken, I was confused about my identity, my ethnicity, my I was very confused about where who I was and where I came from. I, I don't know my dad, so I've, I've I've lived my whole life not knowing half of my 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 genes. And um that left me very unsure about who I was in, in this society as a, and who I was as a black man in, in this society. I felt like a minority for most of my life, to be frank. I never grew up in a community that was predominantly black. So I, I grew up in a community that was predominantly Indian, Punjabi and Hindi. And even though they can sometimes be considered a minority in the UK, they were the majority in my neighborhood. And, and then so, and I just wanted to share that how, despite all of, I've come to this realization and I feel stronger now than I've ever felt in my entire life. And if that can happen for me, it can happen for anybody because I got stabbed in the face five times and I'm not blind. You know what I mean? Like I've had someone, I've had someone shoot, like I've had someone point a gun at me, point blank and pull the trigger and the gun jammed. It didn't go off. I was, I must've been about 11 years old. I was riding down the canal and my, my brakes, I hit my brakes and the brake cable snapped. I went straight into the river and the bike, the weight of the bike dragged me down to the bottom of the river. I managed to climb out. It wasn't easy. It was a traumatic experience, but I'm still here to tell from all these, you know what I'm saying? So like if someone like me can go through all these scenarios where life was against me and some people would say, do you know what? I don't know if I would have overcome that. If I can, then anybody can. And it took for another man's story across the ocean to inspire. And that's why I realized the power of storytelling. I realized sometimes we have to compare our own circumstances to someone else's for us to appreciate our circumstances. And when I stood up in front of those, that crowd, that's what I laid bare. And um, the appreciation that I got back from them, it just made me feel like I had done something meaningful and it felt really rewarding and it felt really good. And I was able to come away from that feeling like I was worth something. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I found this, I don't know if it's a gift, but I know for me, standing in front of a crowd sounds terrifying. Okay. And for you, it sounds like you're not even prepared. You know what the agenda is. <laughs> Tell the story. But as you said, it's, it's just real stuff. No decor, no fluff. It's just like laying bare the truth of your experience that you're sharing. And, and I guess the intention of making a similar gift to the one you received with the book Redemption, mm. right? Is giving hope and confidence that, well, if I did it, you can. But you have to, it takes inspiring people. Another example of where I've inspired someone, I gave a speech at a Suffolk Constabulary Assembly. So 
Uh, I spoke to the police. As you can imagine, it was a very male-dominant audience. It was also a very white dominant. Matter of fact, I was the only black person in the room. And a lot of the men were, you know, middle-aged and senior. And the only reason I did it was because they paid me to. At that point, I was still a little bit, like, bitter towards the police about my experiences of the police I didn't trust the police I didn't like the police and when my probation officer approached me and said oh would you be willing to give a speech at, at a, a police assembly I was like hell no I was like no why would I want to do that <laughs> and she was like they'll pay you I said hell yeah I'll definitely do that <laughs> so like money was the motive I thought well Given all the time that I've been arrested, the amount of times I've been arrested and the money that they've seized from me here and there, I thought, well, they can at least start paying me back. So that was my ignorant kind of approach to saying, yeah, I'll do it. But after I had done it, I received the same condolences, the same appreciation that I received when I was in Liverpool. They were completely taken by me. And I had one officer come up to me and he must have been, he, he was, he said he was retired. He was post 60. He's still, he's still like a, a patron to one of the police commission charities so he comes and gets involved and he pulled me aside and he said look do you know what I'm going to be honest with you he goes my dad was a police officer my granddad was a police officer we've never really liked black people in my family in my, in my family and he said the women they've never really been that no racist but the, the men were very I grew up just having a resentment against a black men and and black culture and we've always come We've always come to, to clashes with the black community when I'm in my work policing. And he, he said, I don't, he said he doesn't consider himself to be a racist, but he still harbors some kind of dis, you know, indifference. And he said, listening to me speak made him question all of that. Mm. In just one hour of me speaking, I made him question everything that he had thought about black men. And he shook my hand and said he never thought he would ever meet a man let alone a black man, let alone a young black man that would make him in his age question everything he's ever thought was right. Mm. And he just said, just what, it's been a pleasure meeting you. He shook my hand and he said, just keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop. And it, it, sounds, like, um, you're almost, it sounds like you're almost surprised by the power of your talent, strength, whatever you call it, but your ability to turn that relatively old man, white man, who's got strong beliefs that haven't been changed for so many years, and, and you manage to turn them around in one hour, and you're the guy who he's not supposed to really pay attention to normally. That's quite an incredible power. Yeah, and I didn't want it, if I'm honest. Yeah, um, I, I, I embrace it, but I also have a healthy fear of it because if I ever just want to just be depressed and smoke some weed, if I ever just want to be a fuck up and just play video games, I don't want to be on a pedestal because I'm only human. And if I ever just want to just get drunk one night and go stumbling down the street like a complete fool, I, I don't feel like I can do that if I'm on a pedestal. I don't feel like I can make mistakes if I'm on a pedestal. And also, given all the mistakes that I've made in the past, a lot of people told me that people go to prison, they don't change, they always go back. 
And a lot of people will say to me, what makes you so different from the people that just always go back to prison? Why are you so different? Why have you changed and managed to sustain um, a positive incline on your personal development? And I've always just felt like, I've always felt like I don't want to be that token. I don't want to be that guy that people see as a positive example, because if one day I struggle, I'll be crucified. Like people would then say to me that, see, you was an example of how people change, but people never really change. And if I mess up, it just reaffirms that realization. And I really fixated on on, on that for, mm. for quite a long time. And I was always scared of actually, if someone said, you're going to be a sensation, here's the here's the footpath to you becoming that sensation I didn't I wasn't sure if I wanted to walk down it if I'm honest so this is why I was always like in shock of how people were receiving me it, it always came as a surprise I was always quite humble about my abilities I never saw myself as being something special if anything I thought I was only a medium to something else that was special yeah and that's you've got this gift that you don't necessarily want because it puts a lot of pressure on you on expectations. <clears throat> At the same time, it sounds like what you talk about is being human, is failing, is overcoming, but it's also also just being human and, and struggling and having those difficulties and being like everybody else. Yes, there is a positive end to the story and, it's, and, it, and that's what people want. There is a bit of a Hollywood twist to that and you don't want to mess it up. I, I get it. But at the same time, what makes, you know, from hearing you and you know, it sounds like the power is just because it's you. It's just the truth. It's, it's being, it's the story of being human. And yes, sometimes it's been shit, but I actually, um, you know, you can do with it and, and you, you can turn that somehow into an opportunity. And it doesn't mean that when you stumble drank one night, that it doesn't sound like you put yourself on a pedestal. You are on a pedestal when you speak, but you actually speak from the crowd and that's different. Anyway, that's just my perception. I just want to share this. But so it's interesting. You said it's not a, something that you wanted necessarily. No. So how, what do you do with this? Like this thing that's, it's in, an incredible power that shifts somebody's 60 year old mindsets or beliefs in one hour. I, see, I suppose you just keep giving it back. You just, you, just, you just keep giving it back. If I'm honest, money's always been an issue for me. The temptation to go back to selling drugs has always been literally around the corner. There's been many occasions when my, my, my spirit and my ego have been lifted to such heights from an overwhelming experience of, like, I've, I gave a speech at the Savoy Hotel in front of Prince Charles and I got to speak to him directly and I met him directly. I've met him three times, to be honest, at, at on three different occasions at three different events. I was invited to Buckingham Palace for lunch with others. And I've, I gave a speech at the Ritz Hotel um, in a small room with some very wealthy people. I was invited to Westminster Abbey to give a speech at, in Speaker's House at a private meal. And so these are like really insanely prestigious opportunities that I've had access to mm. and I've still come away and felt very insecure about my financial stability. I've, I'm surrounded by people who are very wealthy, but in my own world, my financial significance is 
so small, it was very conflicting. It was a conflicting emotion that I had. Um, I felt large in my abilities, but felt very small, my personal stability and my ability to provide for the people that I care about. And that for me, after a while, started to take its toll. I got sick and tired of being a token. I got sick and tired of, oh, you, your speech and your poem and it was amazing. And someone's just written us a check for 10 grand. Oh, that's great. But I actually going to struggle to pay my rent at the end of the month. Yeah. And uh, I went to another another event. This was a big event and they hosted, they used to, I think they held this event once a year and every year they would raise close to a million. You know what I mean? But I went, I gave a speech and that speech was very impactful. Gary Lineker was there and he pulled me aside, him and his, um, his ex-wife at the time pulled me aside and they were very impressed and wanted to speak to me. And then they took a picture of me. Philip Schofield was there. He was very impressed with me and the other girl that stood up and spoke and, and, uh, we had pictures with with Cheryl Cole and Michael McIntyre, and these pictures were in the OK magazine. My my Twitter account the next day went completely off the charts. Like, and despite all of this success, I still didn't have any stability. I couldn't. Mm. You know I, mean? I also still I still lacked a lot in certain financial intelligence that I I, I really needed to be able to take responsibility for my my financial development and I, I i got into i got into a field um, of work where i was doing sound engineering so i was doing live sound engineering and i was working for this company doing stage rigging building sound systems for like small festivals and local events and stuff like that and i was starting to pull away from the public speaking and the radio stuff and i wanted to do something that was going to make me money and I was always a geek at heart. I love technology. I prefer technology to people. So when I'm just left by myself, engineering, working with expensive sound equipment, I'm in my element. I'm most happiest when I'm doing that. And I am very happy when I'm supporting people and helping people. But you tell me to build a cinema and I will be very happy to be left alone and build a cinema. <laughs> yeah, so this is what I, it's what I love doing. And I worked for this company and I was doing all these different shows and I was getting booked to do engineering and sound design for like, like London Fashion Week. And I was going to all these private functions at these different fancy hotels and building sound systems and setting up microphone speakers. And the money at the time wasn't great. But the work kept me busy and it was regular and I got pretty good at it. And the person that I was working for, a lot of their customers liked me a lot. They would always insist that they would want me back the following year to come and do, this, to do the, the event and to, to coordinate the event and engineer. And I was getting a lot of work, but the money was not great. Like it was like £50 a day working like 18 to 20 hour shifts. I managed, I managed year by year, I would always up it um, by 25 pound. And then I would, I got to a point where I upped it to like by 50 pounds. Um, and I managed to get it up to a hundred pound a day. And then I wanted to take it up to 150. My target was 250 a day. I would have been very comfortable and I would have capped it at 250 a day. I value my service and myself. 250 a day the company that i was working for didn't want to pay me 150 pound a day i found another company who was more than happy to pay me 150 pound a day but then one trying to get it up to 200 to 250 a day it was just difficult and because i was 
freelance, none of the work was guaranteed. And I wasn't always the first engineer that would get picked. So I would always get a phone call last minute. Are you available tomorrow? Yeah. All right, cool. We're going to pick up 4 a.m. in the morning. And it's like 11 p.m. You know what I mean? And I was like, right, where are we going? Oh, we're going across down the country. We'll be back in about three days. I was like, okay. I haven't really had much time to prepare, but I just got used to it, to be fair. I got married. I had a son. And I, I needed to be able to... I need to be able to plan a future. I need to be able to offer a bit more. And it just wasn't, I didn't feel, I didn't feel very valued in the work I was doing. Although I knew the customers valued me, I didn't feel like my employers valued me as much as I thought they could have. Um, and I wanted some financial stability. I started to research other big production companies in the UK. And when I looked at their employees, you know, when I looked at some of the big companies, when I looked at their employees, there was just no black people. There was many black people in the industry, freelance. But when I looked at people who actually had fixed contracts with these companies, there were no black people. And it disheartened me and it made me feel like maybe my expectations are unrealistic and maybe I wouldn't, I would never find a sustainable career as a sound engineer in the UK doing what I do I will always be a first choice freelancer which for me was it was good I was earning good money and I was getting regular work but there would always be periods when things would go quiet I'd have no work I have no security I'd get another job and then and then I wouldn't be available for when they did call me out of the blue and it was quite conflicting and then I decided um, that I wanted to go to university I realized that I was bored and I needed a new challenge. And although I had a home studio, I was doing live sound with these organizations, there was still there was still a lot to the science that I didn't comprehend. Sometimes I'll be at an event and some guy would be trying to talk to me and he would lose me with some of the languages, some of the maths. I would just get completely lost. Practically, I knew exactly what I was doing, but in theory, I didn't quite understand. So I plucked up the courage to go to university. It was gonna be the first person in my family to go to university and that was something I never thought was going to be an option for me ever so it was a big deal I wanted to study the science of sound most of the of the um, public government funded universities did music production which was all about the arts it was arts based there were art arts based degrees I didn't need help with that I, I was quite good at sitting in my room and making beats and being creative and it was the science that I lacked understanding of. So I wanted to actually study physics, psychoacoustics, how we perceive sound and how sound works. And I also wanted to understand the hardware, not just how to use it, but how it's designed and what it's, what it's intended for. I found a university, I found about maybe three different universities, but they were all private universities where I could go and do a science-based degree around sound. The government wouldn't fund my full degree because it wasn't with a public university, it was with a university that was owned by a foreign a foreign company. So they were willing to fund half of my degree and the other half I had to fund myself. I Getting the money to fund a degree privately is for someone like myself was not easy. I ended up going to the bank and borrowing the money, which now I regret massively. I realized that actually, if I had borrowed the same amount of money from the bank, I could have spent like out of 10 grand that I borrowed for my first year, I could have spent a thousand pounds and bought all the books and just read them. Mm. Like I really did not need to go to university. How old were you? I was 20, 
26, 27, actually. So I went as a young adult and my son was already born. So I was studying in London and I was living in Suffolk. I was traveling an hour into London every day. So it was about an hour and a half from, from door to door. And then I would come home and obviously have to support my wife because I was married and I was a father. I had two jobs. So I was working at Tesco at the time. And on Sundays, I was working for church doing sound. And I was still getting booked by these other companies to go and do events and stuff like that as, a, as an engineer. So yeah, Monday, so from Monday to Friday, I would travel in the morning to London, do uni, travel back. And then I was working Monday evenings, Tuesday evenings, and then Friday evenings I was working as well. And then Wednesday evenings and Thursday evenings is when I would pretty much try and get as much of my assignments done as possible. Saturday day, I would work at Tesco after working at Tesco on a Friday night. And then Saturday evening, I would spend time with the family. Sunday morning, I would be at the, I would be at the church engineering. They were paying me to do that because they, they didn't want to lose me. So they offered me a, a contract. And after that, I would have two hours to myself. And then I would work whole of Sunday evening at Tesco again. And then I would do that all over again. And I did that wow. for, for a whole year. I mean, it sounds um, like 90, 100 hour weeks. It was intense. <laughs> It was very intense. Years. I did it for one year because the one second year. year I didn't get I didn't get the loan. You didn't get the loan. I didn't get the loan, so I couldn't. I didn't finish my degree, unfortunately. But with the last bursary that I had, I kept it, and I invested it. I bought more equipment for the studio, and I dropped out of university, and I built Radical Lounge. So a friend of mine started Radical Lounge. It was the the logo was different, but he started Radical Lounge as an open mic night. And then he decided that he didn't want to run that anymore. And he went to university also. And I contacted him and said, do you mind if I take the brand and, and, and do something with it? And he was like, you know, what do you want to do with it? And I said, I want to build an artist development company. I want to build a company that supports talented people from marginalized communities to, to aspire towards an independent career. In. And I also want to have a branch of Radical Lounge that inspires and empowers people in, in general, just to, to have to, to establish more self-love and to be aware of their, their value and contributions that they can bring to their own communities. As they say, it takes a community to raise a child. And, and that was the ethos of what I, what I did. I went to a few friends of mine. I said, I want to build this business. We established Radical Lounge. My friend designed the logo, uh, Little Polo Apps. He's a web designer, graphic designer an app designer, good man. And then we basically took Radical Lounge on tour. We, we, we joined up with the Princess Trust and a few other organizations, and we did talks about music. We used music to inspire people. So we spoke to young people who were struggling in areas of their lives and struggling with employment, struggling with education, struggle, struggling with social inclusion. And we used music and even just the journey of trying to, be a musician and the struggles within that and how they translate to some of the life experiences that these young people were having. And so we're using these testimonies to empower and we're using the talents to inspire. And we then took it into schools and made it a little bit more formal where we actually brought in professionals. So somebody who had who was running a recording studio, someone else that was working for the arts development 
part department within the council and brought them to a platform to speak to students who are getting ready to leave college and start their careers in music. We did a few of those as well when we went into colleges and we had a bit of a talk show approach to exploring careers in music locally because career in music isn't the same in Suffolk as it is in London or that it, as it is in, in, in Brighton or as it is. Music careers can be defined by the locality of where you yeah. live. And we, we did that. And I was still running my studio from home. I completely turned my whole living room into a studio. Yeah, my wife supported me, but deep down, it was not the way that she wanted to live. And um, eventually I managed, to, I managed to get my hands on a space. A friend of mine had built his own recording studio but then decided that he didn't really know how to run it and that he just wanted to shut it all down. I went to some investors with all the skills I had from the Princess Trust Enterprise, doing business as a GCSE in prison. I wrote a business plan. I went to some investors. I said, look, um, I run a studio from my house. A friend of mine has got a space. He's got a lease on a space. He's got about, you know, about maybe 10 grand's worth of equipment, eight grand's worth of equipment. He wants to sell it all for six, five and a half to six grand. And I want to take it over and merge my business into his business, rebrand it as my own and run this company. How long ago was that? That was two, almost two and a half, three years ago now. Okay. And, and yeah, I wrote a business plan. So I went to a few investors. Most of them said no, but an investor from my church said, yes, you know what? with all the work that you've been doing for the church and how much you contribute to the quality of our sound and the, the relationship you have with the young people, it's, it's, it's little to ask of us. We'll give you half the money. And then I went to another friend of mine who is a good friend of mine who used to run a clothing store and stuff like that and is in, involved in properties. I went to him and he said no. And um, he didn't even hear me out. He was like, nope, not interested. So I went to his business partner and had a good old chat with his business partner and his business partner said, you know what, I think it's a good idea. And you know what, we don't really care about your business, to be honest. It's a good idea for you. We don't know nothing about the music industry, but we're going to do it for you. We're going to invest in you. We're not investing in your business, we're investing in you. So he went back and spoke to the other guy. I got a phone call later that night and the guy was like, well played, Tiss. <laughs> well played. We're going to invest. So they gave me the money. I took over the studio. Hey, can I just... What made you so passionate about making Radical Lounge, taking the space? You had already your studio at home. Okay, not a great setup like, for, for your own life. But I just wonder, what made you so convinced that this is what you wanted? Impact. I wanted to make impact. And I think when people see you for the first time, you only get that, you only get usually one opportunity to make a first impression. And although I had people that were happy to come to my home and record, it was difficult to really, it was, it was difficult to, to visualize my, an empire growing mm. out of, of a bedroom in a shared accommodation. Because at the time, me and my, my ex-wife were split up and I, I, I went from living in a family home to living in a, shared, in a shared apartment. And things had changed quite a lot. I went through quite a very severe depression Going through a divorce has got to be one of the hardest things I've ever done. I think it was harder than prison. I'm not going to lie. Do you know what it was? I saw someone else trying to do something and I saw how I could do it. When I got the phone call to say, do you know what? I'm going to shut the studio down. I was like, mate, I'll have it. Like, if you're going to do that, don't shut it down. I'll have it. I'm going to go and get the money. If it wasn't for the Princess Trust Enterprise Program and the, B and the, the business GCSE course that I did in prison, I wouldn't have had the know-how. 
mm. to, to design the architecture for me to make it mine. But because of all of those, the, the, the education that I had, I knew straight away how I can make it mine and what I was going to do with it. I, you know, I love making music. I've literally just finished mixing and mastering a song for a client who I co-wrote the song with. It's a really great song. I'm really happy with the way it's sounding. We've got the video shot and everything. And literally about two minutes before we were supposed to have our conversation, I was bouncing down the master. And so for me, I think when I... Wait, just, sorry, just stop it. What's that? It sounds like real satisfaction. Just what you described. Yeah, I would call it satisfaction, but I'm, I'm optimistic and I've got big plans. And I'm 36, four years, I'll be 40. And it doesn't phase me in the slightest. I'm only just getting started. You're only getting started. And if I had to put in a nutshell, what I want to accomplish with my life is I want to make millionaires. I want to make as many people rich as possible before I die. That's what I want to do. And if I can do it through music, because it's what I'm good at, It's what at first is what I was most passionate about, but now it's what I've invested the most in. I've invested the amount of time and money I've invested in music and sound is so vast for me in terms of my life's earnings. There's no turning back now. I, I mm -hmm. need to finish what I've started. I want to show people that having a career in music is possible. Being independent um, is possible. Being entrepreneurial in music is possible. I struggled to accomplish it when I was 19. But with the resources that young people have at their, their disposal now, there's no reason why you can't accomplish it. And I also just want to inspire people to believe in themselves. Don't let money, don't let money define your bad choices. Don't let money be the reason why you give up. Don't let money be the reason why you fuck up. You know what I mean? Don't let money be the reason why you lose value for yourself because you've got too much value in money because That's what happens. If you value money too much, you lose value in people. And if you lose value in people, you lose value in, in the person that you're looking at in the mirror. And you can have it all one day and you can lose it all tomorrow. I've had a taste of wealth. Not that I've, not that I've had a lot of money. I've been surrounded by it. People with it. I've made friends with millionaires. And I, I quickly realized that, you know what? It doesn't feel that comfortable being amongst those people if I don't have people coming from coming up the path from where I come from I don't want to soar to the top and then look back and all the people that I love and that I grew up with are still miles behind me I'm I'll just let go of the money and walk straight back to where I come from because that's where I feel most comfortable I feel most comfortable working with people that haven't made it yet I feel I feel more accomplished if I can help someone else accomplish their own dreams and I'm a father now so I've got that paternal instinct where I want to I want the best for my son I also want the best for the community that my son has to be. It sounds like you're just at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It really does sound like it. But there's always a new beginning. There's always a new beginning. Yeah, of course. But at least that part of the story, it sounds like it's getting started. Cool. And now I'm just thinking maybe the podcast will be still running in 10 years and I'd love to interview you in five to 10 years <laughs> and hear about the, the remainder of the story. And I've got to say, we beat hands down the length of any other podcast I've, I've recorded. Not that I've recorded many yet, but, <laughs> and I'm like really grateful for like this. Yeah, really, uh, really inspiring story. Obviously, you're, you speak really well and you've got the power, but also what's really inspiring is you work for others. It's what can you contribute?
and then and that's my, in my opinion it's the meaning of life we've all been there we ask god and god is very individual to the person your god my god our, our own perspectives of what god is is always going to be different for each person but we always find ourselves turning to that energy when we're desperate when we're complacent and comfortable we're the kings and we're the gods and but when everything's hit rock bottom and and you all else has failed you're no longer the god and you look to the, 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 the higher energy and think what am i supposed to be doing somebody please give me a sign we all have that 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 kind of that we come to that realization but i think for, for me it's life is all about being of service i realized that being of service to others is what makes you valuable in this world is what makes you meaningful when you become a parent you're of service to your children when you're working you're of service to your employer and their customers and when you're married you're of service to your spouse when you have siblings you're of service to your siblings in your community you're of service to your neighbors if an old lady's struggling you're going to help you know what i'm saying if somebody's in danger you're going to do your part you know what i mean like and i i even if you look at nature, if you look at if you look at trees, if you look at if you look at mushrooms, if you look at plants, if you look at insects, they all serve a purpose to something else. Even if they don't know what their purpose is, there's something else that does and exploits it. And that's just the way the world is designed, to be frank. And even all the technology that's man-made, it's there to be of service. And so I quickly realized that if you're not of service, to anybody or anything in this world, your life is meaningless. Mm. Simple as that. Like if you, if all you do is consume and you don't give anything back in the slightest, you will not sustain any form of relationships with anybody because people will get bored of you not giving back and they will leave you. It's just, yeah. whether you're, whether it's at work, whether it's your parents, a mother's love has got to be the strongest love that there is in mankind. It's the, a mother's love, and a father's love, but more so a mother's love has got to be the purest form of love that you can find in, in, in mankind. And even a mother can lose the will to be of service to their children if their children don't develop compassion and, and drive and just favorable attributes. I've seen it many times when children fall out with their parents because the children have just gone so far astray and all they want to do is consume. It's why drug addicts, it's why dry, drug addicts, they don't lose all of their relationships because of their drugs. It's because the, the drugs hinders them from having an ability to be of service mm. because you're addicted to something that you need to consume in large quantities because chemically your body can't cope without it anymore. How can you be of service when you're at the expense of something so strong and so powerful? So this is why drug addicts, they lose relationships. It's not just because of the drugs. The deeper thing is you can't be of service if something else is in control of you. Yeah. So, um, and that's from where I, that's where I stand. Everything that I do is about being of service to you and others. And I find value in doing that. I find massive value in being a person that other people can depend on. Of course, I do need to protect myself. I, I need to be careful. I need to not be of service to everybody and everything. You know what I mean? But I would like to see a world where people, more and more young people come to that realization that the more you give is the more you receive, not the more you take.
Amen. I'm not religious, but that's um, real good words. And I really relate because my career, you know, I had gone perfect and then to the point where I wanted more. I wanted to, it became for me, not for others. And, and that's when things turned actually badly. And, and what I do here is being of service in my own way. And, uh, and your story is definitely in service. And maybe when we both trying to be in service and hopefully the combination of those two forces will generate a great podcast, that a great episode that uh, inspires and, and help people. And I, and I really believe so. Thanks for, thanks a lot for your time. Jess. I really appreciate it. I'd like to maybe close with a poem. I can't, how can I tell Please. you that I do poem and spoken word and I don't leave you with a little something? <laughs> Please. So, so if you don't mind, as I sit back and watch how the world evolves, we all chase the money. We are not absolved. They say we fight for freedom, but still I feel controlled. I think it's time to break free and destroy the mold. I think it's time to break free and fulfill your goals. Never listen to the lies. Let the truth be told. We only look into the eyes of the world we know, but where did all the Martin Luthers and the Malcolms go? Where did all the role models and the fathers go? I've got my family, but still I feel alone. If you look into the eyes of a man with a broken soul, look into the eyes of that man, you can see the toll. Too many young people lost, don't know where to go, but how's a boy supposed to understand what he doesn't know? And cause sex sells, should a girl then become a hoe? If you look into the eyes of a child, you can see tomorrow. We struggle to provide, so we have to borrow. Get pain and sorrow, now your heart is hollow. Giving up on life, cause and effect. You never know what you have until there's nothing left. We don't appreciate life till there's been a death. People commit suicide in despite of stress. Is that we're running out of pride? Is there any left? I think we must have misread the signs. It's a game of chess. I struggled to survive, but survived through the struggle. I spent a lot of time trying to make my money double. Addicted to the hustle, ended up in lots of trouble and subsequently went to prison. Yeah, I did a couple. Incarceration didn't stop me though. It made me smarter. It made me think about the things in life that I would rather, but being rich don't make it easy. It just makes it harder. And being poor don't slow me down. It just makes me faster. It made me think about the things in life I truly need, no longer consumed by the greed for the things I see. Your ignorance will only allow you to be deceived. So many unanswered questions. So what do you believe? Materialism is a trap. And we're the pawns, it's a fact. It's a war, let's attack. And I ain't finished yet. I'm only getting started. If you're feeling lost, Home is where your heart is. I've got to speak my mind. I don't mean no disrespect. Listen to the message. This is not a threat. We need to reunite. That's how we be the best to conquer and divide that only leads to death. So what's the point in killing if we're going to die? Matter of fact, what's the point in speaking if you're going to lie? I'm running out of air. I need to catch my breath. I'm only here to let you know. Find some disrespect. Thank you. Tess, thanks. Beautiful words. Where can people listen to you, hear your music? So I've been very lax on releasing content because I've been so busy helping others release their content. But I do have a song that's out called Toy Stories, which is uh, it's a play on the, on the cartoon. And it's a bit of a kind of, it's about the chemistry between boys and girls and stuff like that. But that's on Spotify. So if you look up Disrespect, you can find me on pretty much most or not all social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Spotify, Apple Music. If you look up Disrespect, 
you'll find me toy stories even on youtube if you look up disrespect you'll find some of my stuff i've got one poem out called what black history which is uh and given the fact it's black history month it's worth mentioning and it was just me articulating my understanding of what black history is and how people view it and i just wanted to understand what does black history mean to you because everybody plays a part in black history it doesn't just affect black people um, where, where can people listen to this poem it's on youtube so if on, you on tis respect as well yeah, yeah tis respect and if you type in what black history you'll be able to find me it's a video um, of me me performing the poem my son's in the video as well bless him his first little cameo and I've got loads more coming the poem that I just recited to you that hasn't been published yet but it will be published very soon and I will be releasing a lot of my music from the beginning of the new year going forwards but I do have a couple of more songs that I'm going to cool. be as well cool. probably got about maybe three albums worth of music and content to release oh wow sounds like that's a new beginning as well it, yeah it is it definitely is we're on the verge of establishing a, 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 a record label, ourselves as a record label. We've got our first three artists that we're going to be signing to a production deal. And, and yeah, we're going to just make great content. We're going to build, we're basically in the process of building and designing our shows to take on tour. So once those shows have been perfected and once they're ready, we'll make it public and we'll start booking ourselves at venues. Really inspiring, super exciting to hear a story. And, uh, and I'm grateful that people like you exist and show the way. Thank you. Hope this episode inspired you to follow your passion and purpose because that's my mission with this podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and rate it. And please contribute to my mission by sharing the podcast to your friends and, and family. And finally, if you know of someone who is looking for direction, I have an amazing six-week course. The course combines deep personal work, group coaching sessions, and a buddy system. Participants love the course. You can learn more at www.drb.me. Derby spelled D-A-R-E-B-E dot M-E. Thanks and till then, be yourself.